Amen. Isn't it, glad? Isn't it good to be back inside? Thank you so much for those of you who endured with us in the outdoors. Um, it, it really, you know, I say that it really wasn't that bad, to be honest. Uh, we, we had pretty good weather most of the way. Uh, I think we only had one rain out. It was Easter Sunday. We ended up doing it on Saturday instead of, instead of Sunday morning. And, um, and so we just had that one time. I think it was one other time where it was a little drizzly and we were tearing down in the rain. And so that was fun. And then last week it was insanely hot, but uh, but here we are. We're back inside, and so thank you so much for being here. Thank you for uh, coming out. Um, I know there are other people that that just aren't quite ready to come out and gather in groups like this, and that's that's fine. We want to leave space for all of that. We're still going to continue to show this, uh, do a do a, a stream tonight at seven o'clock, and so we'll still have this available for those. Uh, that wanted to stay at home, um, and you guys are obviously more than welcome to uh, to wear masks, to space out, to do whatever it is that you feel like you need to do. We're encouraging that, and we're going to uh, help you out. I think, I think next week we may even have some masks here to help equip equip you with that if you need that sort of help. And so uh, we're here, and we're going to study the Word together. Uh, if you've been with us the last two weeks, then you know that we're in our Summer Scripture series. This is one of my favorite series to do. We do this every uh, summer, well, I say every summer, this is our third summer in existence, so we've done it the last two, and it's been so much fun because what we do is we just go to a book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse, line by line, concept by concept, and we get to spend a lot of time just walking through, and it's great for me because I don't have to think about, uh, I don't have to really think about what it is that I need to teach, I just look to the Word and it's like, here it is, this is your next, these are the next verses in the progression, and you just go ahead and teach those verses. And the other great thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of times as, as a pastor, I try to discern what it is that our congregation needs. I start, I, I ask God to show me what are the felt needs? What are the needs of our, of our, uh, of our partners and of the attenders here at Legacy City? And, and, and sometimes I feel like he reveals that to me. He shows me there's this need or this need, and here's this problem and this issue. Uh, much like the writers in the, in the New Testament, they knew what the problems were of the church, and they were writing to address those problems. And so sometimes I come with, with topical messages and sermons where I get to, uh, to hit on that. Well, in this instance, uh, we're, we're just walking through the Word, and so God is definitely telling us what we need to know. He's just showing us exactly what it is. And so we're in Hebrews, and we're going to be in this letter to the Hebrews for the entire summer. Um, so far, we've covered chapter 1. And uh, we, we walked through it over the last two weeks. And, and before I get too much further, because I don't want to walk around these, we have three more scripture journals available. They are free of charge, paid for. Somebody has grace bombed these to whoever would like them. Is there anybody that would like and eat a, a scripture journal? I'll see one hand, two hands. Okay. Uh, there we go. I see three. Let's see if that makes it to you. Here, Brandon. I, I'm not going to throw them any further. Uh, there's one on the front row here, and then I think one back in the middle. So. Uh, if you want, if you want one of those, they're they're called ESV uh, English Standard Version Scripture Journals, and uh, and these are great tools. I would encourage you to have these with you. It has all the scripture on one side, and then space for you to take notes all down the other side. Uh, and it's just the Book of Hebrews, and so you can kind of keep that, and that's a great way to take notes, uh, not just here on Sunday mornings, but also if you're studying through the Word yourself throughout the week. And so uh, you can pick those up on Amazon, I think, for like $5 or $5.99 or something like that. Um, they are cheaper on Christian Book, ChristianBook.com, I think, for like $3.99 or $2.99. The problem is, is they were out of stock, so we had to order from Amazon. And so uh, you can check that out. We might have a few more back in stock here next week. 
uh, or, or in a week or two to come as well, but uh, we are officially sold out, so enjoy. Um, we covered chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3 on the first week about how Jesus is better, and then last week we covered the next 11 verses about how Jesus specifically is better than the angels. And ultimately, the thrust of the entire letter to the Hebrews could be considered, Jesus is better. We could just title this whole series, this whole, ser- this whole sermon series, this whole book, Jesus is better. We could lean on that because the, the author is essentially presenting a sermon, uh, most likely to, uh, we established in the first week, to a group of Hellenistic Jewish Christians, and is hoping to sway the church uh, with the glory of Jesus that they might, that they might go. Right? They might go and, and, and spread the gospel throughout the world through evangelism and discipleship. And so he, he's trying to show them this is what we need to do. This is where we need to go. Why? Because Jesus is better. And so another thing that we touched on, I think, on the first week is that the goal of the author is to warn the church. Uh, I think we actually touched on it last week. The goal of the author is to warn the church against shrinking back to the shadows of the old covenant. Right, reverting back to Judaism and, and especially not accepting a compromised version of the faith. And that's, that's what a lot of them were in danger of doing. And that's why he's writing this particular letter. And that's why he's preaching this particular message. And he's writing to us too. He's telling us that Jesus is better. He's telling us to be confident in the power of Christ. He's telling us not to revert back to our old ways and compromise our faith. And so in the first chapter of Hebrews, the author stacks up these massively like glorious titles on Jesus. God, he, he says that Jesus is God's fullest final revelation. He says that he's the very son of God. He's the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the world was created. He's the great upholder of the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the final and great high priest, the purifier of all mankind. He is seated on the throne, ruling on high. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is, in fact, God. We got all of that from the first three verses of this book. He is no mere angel, we learned last week. He is no mere prophet, priest, or king. He is God. Can somebody give him a shout of praise this morning? Because he is God. It's weird not hearing the horn honks a little bit. Up to this point, it has been all about the supremacy of Christ. His prophetic supremacy as the final word of God. His cosmic supremacy as the creator and sustainer. His Levitical supremacy as the ultimate priest seated in heaven. His angelic supremacy and that he is superior to angels. And last week we talked about in name, vocation, honor, existence, and reign. And now as we start chapter 2, the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that we know Uh, That talking about this Jesus, everything we just covered, talking about this Jesus is not some kind of exercise in academic theology. We're not like opening up this letter in this book this morning to memorize some religious data. We're not trying to pass a theology test at the end of this. No, hearing about who Jesus is, learning about him, understanding and identifying his nature and attributes is not enough. We are here so that we might know him. That we might know him and obey him and be known by him. Come on, somebody. Jesus is not a theological, philosophical concept. He is the Lord. And what he wants today is you, your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And so we come 
to what is really the first major application in this book, this letter to the Hebrews. Right here at the beginning of chapter 2. And, and here's what it is. I'm going to give you, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and give you what it is. In light of Jesus' undeniable glory, his, his manifold superiority, don't abandon him for anything. That's the baseline. That's what we're going to walk to throughout this, this morning and this, this particular message. Don't abandon him for anything. So go ahead and turn to your Bibles or, or your scripture journals to Hebrews chapter 2. I was originally planning on covering nine verses today, uh, but um, I'll, we will be lucky if we make it through four. So, um, so, so Adam, the teaching schedule's been pushed back a little bit. Uh, so, go, I'll, I'll, but uh, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're going to read it together in a moment. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, but I want you to get ready and buckle up because this is some good, good text. And I'm really excited to dive in. Let's read it together. Uh, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And since the message uh, declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would speak to us today. Do what I cannot do. Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts and into our souls. Bring us to action. Tear down walls and, and reveal to us who you really are and who we are in you. We give you this time. We pray that you bless the hearing and the reading of your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so when I was in uh, college, uh, I went snorkeling off the Florida Keys. And it was a blast at first. I don't know if you've ever been snorkeling, but it is so much fun. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We got out there. I'd never been on a boat in the ocean before, only on like a lake or a river or whatever. I'd never been on the ocean. And so... So that was a first, and that was really exciting. I've never been snorkeling before, so that was equally exciting. And, and, and some other exciting things happened on that trip as well, but not in a good way, not like a good exciting. Uh, for starters, I got a nosebleed while I was out snorkeling. So I'm out there, I'm doing my thing, I'm having a lot of fun, and all of a sudden, uh, my face mask begins to fill up with blood. And now, now, mind you, there have been a lot of reports of shark attacks in Florida that year. I mean, I, I vividly remember, like, there were, like, 10. And I, I remember even, like, having a little bit, not, I'm not that very anxious person, but I remember thinking, oh, we're about to go swim in some waters where, like, 10 shark attacks have happened. How about that? And so, uh, so I'm out there, and, and, I, and my mask begins to fill up with, with blood, and, and I have this nosebleed, and, and, and so uh, I have to get back to the boat as fast as possible. So I get back to the boat. And I get up on the boat, and, and I'm, you know, doing the whole thing, leaning the head back, putting the stuff in the nose, and I'm trying to stop the nosebleed. And, um, and, and while I sat there on the boat, and I'm waiting for the nosebleed to stop, and in the process, I got seasick because the boat is sort of rocking back and forth. And, and I do have a little bit of motion sickness that I struggle with. And so I'm, so I'm sitting there, and the boat's rocking back and forth, and I've had this blood loss. And, and so, so I'm, I'm getting seasick, and naturally this led to me throwing up in the very water that my friends were all snorkeling in. 
everything's clear, so it's just floating right along. So to combat the motion sickness, while my nosebleed subsides, I decide to take some Dramamine. Somebody on the boat has some Dramamine. I've never taken Dramamine before, so I decide it's, you know, it's kind of like Advil, right? I pop two of those bad boys, and, um, and, and it hit me in about 10 minutes. I, I fell asleep on the deck of the boat while everyone else was still out exploring the reef and having a good time. An hour and a half later, we're back at the boat dock, and somebody kicks me and wakes me up. Um, and my whole body hurts. And I'm like, well, what is happening? Well, I fell asleep on the deck of the boat with no covering, and, and I was in nothing but my swim trunks, so my entire backside and the right side of my face, because I was laying like this, is completely red and burnt and just awful. It was a terrible situation. It was truly a trip I will never forget. i tell you that story, though, to, to illustrate something. I want to get back to when I was in the water. All right, I was swimming around, head down, right? Just doing the whole snorkeling thing. I've got my $30 disposable water camera. That's just as terrible. It's taking pictures that are virtually useless. You, you guys may not even know what an underwater disposable camera is, but it, it was a thing. It, well, it tried to be a thing. It wasn't really a thing. Um, so I'm taking worthless pictures of fish and reef and, and I'm doing these things and, and I'm enjoying life and it's great. And I'm seeing all these fish and I'm seeing all this stuff. And, 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 and when I noticed that my, the blood started to kind of come into my mask and I noticed that I was beginning to have a nosebleed, I, I came up out of the water and I, I looked around and I was so much further from the boat than I thought I was. Right? I was so much further. I thought I had swam in a relatively straight line for about 50 yards. But instead, I was more like 150 yards away, but like at a diagonal. I was the other direction. So when I popped up and I expected to see the boat right there, it wasn't there. And I had to turn and realize, whoa, it's, it's way over there. You, you see, what happened was while I was floating and taking pictures, I was also adrift. The current was moving me without my knowledge. The boat didn't move. It was, it was anchored down. It was safe. It was secure. I was the one who was drifting away from the boat. The title of today's sermon is Drifting. We, we read in the passage a moment ago, the author of Hebrews, he warns the readers and us to stay true and not drift. So let's look at back at, let's look back at, uh, at verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, meaning in light of the utter supremacy of Jesus over all powers and all principalities in heaven and on earth, as established in chapter 1, therefore, and also I love, I love words like therefore because they signal a connection. Right? In this case, it's a connection to what we read in chapter 1 that, to the response that, that we are encouraged to have that's going to be outlined here in chapter 2. So, so therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Here's the key part. We need to know what it is that the author means by what we have heard. Since it is that message that we are being called to pay such close attention to and not to drift from lest we drift away from it. So what is the message that we're so prone to drift from? Quite simply, it's the gospel. This is mentioned in verse 3, where the author calls this message a great salvation, and he contrasts it with the law given through Moses in the Old Covenant. We'll get to that in just a, a second, but I want to sit on verse 1 for, for a moment more. This idea of drifting is an interesting one. It, it's meant to invoke a, a nautical mental image. 
Okay, it's basically sailing language. The verb used to mean drift away in our Bibles is the one that refers to a ship drifting away from the safety of a harbor or its anchor. It's, it's being carried by the, the tide or the current. Uh, to use another nautical term, the verb can specifically mean that your ship has broken free from its moorings, which are the chains or the ropes that, that keep it tied down or attached to the anchor. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I want to share a few quick things about drifting away. And really, I think there are six uh, quick things that we should know about drifting. And, and so, I guess if you're a note taker, this sermon has like six points, and then it's going to have like three more. And so, um, that are, that are they're separate. Okay, so uh, here we go. Num- number one, here's some things that we need to know about drifting. Drifting requires no effort. It requires no effort. In fact, it's often the lack of effort that leads to the drifting away from the gospel. There's a saying that goes, people seldom lose their religion by blowout. It's usually a slow leak. It requires no effort for drifting to occur. Think about when you're at the beach and, and you're out playing in the waves, right? And, and, and then the seaweed like touches your leg and, and it scares you. And so you start doing that awkward, like, run back to the sea. You got the high steps, and you're, you're trying to get out of the water as fast as possible, right? And so you get back to shore, and then you look around, and you don't recognize anything in front of you, right? And, and you realize, well, you've moved, like, 50 yards down the beach without even trying. Your family's, like, way over there. And so you've got to go back over there because drifting requires no effort on our part. You were just out there in the water. You were just floating. You were just treading water. You were just having fun. But you drifted away. You drifted down. And, and thus our need to be vigilant against it. Which we'll get to. Not only is drifting required no effort, it's also an unconscious effort. Not only does it require no effort, it's also something that just happens unconsciously. Like, like the beach example I just used, or my snorkeling illustration, you might not even know that you're drifting. Usually drifting's not intentional. It's simply a byproduct of inattention and carelessness. That's what the author, I believe, senses in the Jewish Christians that he's writing to. They have become careless about their moorings, to use that phrase, in Christ. They've become careless. In, and at first, in calm waters, it's not even noticeable. Right? It's not even, we, we would know if we were drifting in a storm. If there's a storm brewing, we would know if we're drifting away. That's, that's easy to spot. That's easy to, to notice. We would know that. But, but when it's calm, it just happens. It happens quietly. No friction. No dramatic sense of departure. Many times we don't even see it when it starts. But just like boats, our souls can veer almost completely off course in moments. In Revelation 2.4, Jesus is quoted as, as saying uh, to the church at Ephesus, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had spiritual drifting. They, they drifted away. They moved away from Jesus. Keep in mind that Jesus doesn't move. He's the anchor. He's, he, he's solid. Hebrews 6 will talk about this later on. Uh, he is always right there. It is us who move. And C.S. Lewis said, uh, C.S. Lewis once said, as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them 
would have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? It can be an unconscious thing to drift away from the Lord. Here's, here's the third thing to, to think about drifting. Uh, we never drift upstream or against the current. We never drift upstream or against the current. When we drift away from the Lord, it's, it's always going with the flow of society or a flesh. We take the path of least resistance. When we're drifting away from Jesus, our, our natural inclination is to essentially fall back into or fall into predictable patterns. We, we stop reading the Word. We replace it with something else. Not, not even always a bad thing. We just replace it with something else. We stop coming to church, start sleeping in. We start filling, you know, we start filling the gaps left by Jesus with other things, and, and sometimes even good things like working out or volunteering or, or starting a business, but it's always seemingly easier to do that than remaining anchored to Jesus. We never drift upstream or against the ground. One of the things I love doing is uh, I love whitewater rafting. And Sorry, not whitewater rafting. Whitewater rafting is fun. I love whitewater kayaking. I like being responsible for myself um, and not in a big boat with a lot of people. But, uh, but what happens is whenever you're whitewater rafting, and, and, and I've been out on you know, several tough rivers, uh, several, several rows rivers with a lot of class four and class five rapids, there is one direction that you go. If you drop something, it's it's gone. Like you're not getting it back. Well, I, I say that I actually lost my hat from under my. I had a, I had a hat on one time under my helmet, and and it came off whenever I did a nosedive down a down a, a waterfall, and um, I actually found it about a mile later down the river, pinned against a rock, and I was like, let's go. And so, um, but here's the thing: we, we it always moves in one direction. And so what happens is, is we, we fall into this, this tide, we fall into this current, and we're not going to turn around and go back upstream. We begin to flow along, away from the Lord. Another thing that I know is true is that the speed downstream increases. It actually increases. Moving from an ocean analogy to a river analogy, if you'll allow me to kind of keep with the nautical theme, but do that. Um, the further away from Jesus you get, the further downstream you drift, the faster you slip away. At first, it wasn't even noticeable. A slow drift, no effort, slipping gently away with the current. But the further you get, the more speed you pick up, the easier it is to move away from the Lord. And, and as the saying goes, when you hear the noise of the waterfall, it's too late. The idea of drifting away is as real to us today as it was to the church 2,000 years ago. This is the point when we realize what's happening, right? We've been drifting along quietly, easily, but all of a sudden we look up and we don't know where we are, right? The alarms are going off. How did I get here? How did this happen? I was so close to the Lord. I was serving and I was giving and I was reading and I was praying. How did I end up right here? And we go through this little faith crisis where, where now the noise of the waterfall is so loud and we have been slowly drifting for so long that it drowns out the still quiet, the still small voice of the Lord. And we start having questions like, why can't I hear from the Lord anymore? Why does God feel so far away now? Listen to me, church. He is not far away. We are. Yeah. 
He's still there. He's still steadfast. He's still unchanging. But so many people, when they realize they are at this point, they give up. They sort of just go off the deep end. Maybe not forever, but maybe for a few years. Going about life far from God because it's too much trouble. It's too much work to go back upstream. And I don't know where you are on the scale. Securely anchored to the Savior, slowly drifting away, or speeding up to the point of no return, as it were. But hopefully you're not in the final location, and this is the fifth note about drifting, is that it ends in shipwreck. Drifting is going to end in a ship. When a ship is adrift, eventually it will find rocks and it will crash. Eventually it will go over the falls. The writer of Hebrews is afraid that the, that the readers, the church that he's ministering to, that they're going to shipwreck into their old world of Judaism. That they're going to continue to drift away from Christ until they end up right back where they started, buying into a savior-less faith. For some of us, we've shipwrecked before, and we know what that looks like. We've hit rock bottom. We've been as far away from God as we can get, and we've been alone in the deep, dark sea with nothing but our flesh, our sin staring us back in the face. And if you've been there, I know you don't want to go back. But if you're drifting and you're not diligent, you don't catch yourself, then shipwreck is inevitable. And here's the sixth thing. Another thing that's inevitable is that drifting is a danger to others. It's also a danger to others. Think about a ship losing its, its moorings, letting go of its anchor, getting untied from the dock while sitting in a marina. A crowded marina. The wind picks up. The tide starts pulling out. The ship is going to bump and smash into anything around it. It might even take a few boats out with it as it goes. When we start drifting, we have no idea the impact it might have on others. Others that look up to us. Others that look to us for spiritual guidance. Others that came to know Christ through our witness or our testimony or even just our invitation to church. If, if I were to drift, think about the ramifications it would have in this church. You don't have to imagine it. Just think about the many churches out there who have had leadership drift away from the will of God and how it played out. You might not be a pastor or in church leadership, but you have a family. You have a group of friends. You have others that know you are a believer. What might your drifting do to them? Now, I want you to listen to me. But, because the case to remain anchored to Jesus is made easily and unequivocally when it comes to our relationship with him alone. But it is an added incentive to remain vigilant and watchful because of how it also might affect our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so how does this drifting start? What are the warning signs? Real quick, these are not three points. I guess there's three more points. I don't know. Um, I just had three, three thoughts, three things off the top of my head that cause and lead to drifting. The first one is time. The longer you're a Christian in this life, the easier it is uh, to take it for granted, and you start to drift. You feel comfortable. Basically, you get lazy. You I served a ton when I was a teenager. When I was younger, I, I gave a lot before retirement, right? I've, I've read the good book cover to cover once or twice, and I know most of what there is to know out there. I've heard the same sermon before. I'm good to go. 
The longer we're Christians, the easier it is to forget our first love. The feeling that we had when we first came to the Lord, the passion for his word and the fire within us to share it with the world, with everyone we come in contact with. I was thinking about it last night, and I feel like most people who failed in scriptures, and I don't have empirical data to back this up, but I feel like most people who failed in scriptures failed in the second half of their lives. Time got the best of them in a way. So, so time is one thing that causes the drift. Another one is familiarity with the truth. This is similar to time because this can also come with time, but familiarity can leave us adrift. You, you, your first time in New York City will leave you astounded. The sights and the sounds, the, the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, Times Square, Central Park, the, sub, the, the, the subway, getting on the subway, the, the pizza, the euros, the bagels, the cops on horses. I always thought it was funny when tourists in Times Square would stop and marvel at, at the cops you know, sitting on horses. Like, bro, you came from middle America to the busiest intersection in the world, surrounded by lights and restaurants and shopping, and the naked cowboy, and you're mesmerized by a horse. You can see that back home. But we take all these things in, and, and, and we're like, wow, this is really, really cool. But what if we go back? What if we visit a third or a fourth or fifth time? Eventually, we stop being wowed. We become familiar with the city. We initially are thrilled to venture into the wonders of salvation in Christ. It's a rush that makes us want to laugh and shout and cry and tell everyone. But after repeated visits, we can become bored tourists. It's not as exciting. It's not as moving as it once was. Not because Jesus has changed, but because we have. Another thing that causes it is busyness. We are busy people. And the busyness of our lives can overwhelm us. The busyness of the Christian life can equally become overwhelming, which leads to another word that we sometimes use, burnout. The, the cares and responsibilities of this world can simply overwhelm us and cause us to begin to drift away from the beauty of Christ. I'm not going to give any more commentary on that one because you probably can fill in the gaps on that one. So how do we avoid it? We pay close attention to what we have heard, the gospel, the good news. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's power on the verses two through four. Uh, since the message, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. This means that the gospel is the prophetic word of Christ. Jesus is both God's messenger and God's message. And it was attested to us by those who heard, this being the apostles who affirmed and confirmed the message of Christ. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The Jesus who healed the sick and opened blind eyes also sent the Holy Spirit to empower his church with an explosion of miraculous signs. Healing the lame, speaking in foreign tongues, prophesying. Today is Pentecost Sunday, which is the day that we recognize that the Holy Spirit descended on the church just as Jesus promised. And, and that is described in that, in that wild and wonderful passage in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is another messenger. And, and really there are two messages being contrasted here. One is the law given through Moses, which is what the author of Hebrews means by the message declared by the angels. 
This is exactly what the first Christian martyr, Stephen, calls the law of Moses in Acts chapter 7. The other message is the gospel of Christ. The message that Christ came preaching and accomplishing, which we'll get specific about in just a moment. But first, church, I want you to see the point that the author of Hebrews is making in comparing these two messages, Moses and Christ. If rejecting Moses led to just retribution, so the verse says, if an Israelite who failed to heed that message was liable to, to just judgment, how much more would we be liable to judgment if we disregard the message of salvation now spoken through God's own son? This is, this is um, a point of logic called an A4TRI, um, or, or a how much more argument. The, the Hebrews actually call it a light, or, light and heavy or a, a lesser or greater form of reasoning. The logic states that since a, a cause of lesser importance will yield a given outcome, a cause of greater importance will yield a correspondingly greater outcome. Makes sense. It's like what Jesus says in the Gospels. If it is lawful to save an animal from a pit on the Sabbath, how much more would it be lawful to rescue a person on the Sabbath? His, his basic point is that the salvation of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom preached and accomplished by Jesus Christ, is far greater than the shadows and the types of gospel found in the Old Testament. Therefore, don't, don't you dare shrink back from Christ to Moses, to the temple, to Judaism. Pe people today, don't you dare shrink back to a lesser way of living. Me meaning a life without our Savior, a life without the gospel and this great salvation. So let's start to wrap it up with this question. What is the gospel? The great salvation that he mentions in verse 3 that we are supposed to play pay very close attention to. Well, there's three parts of the gospel that we've already seen in Hebrews. Grace, kingdom, and warning. I'll just walk through these real quick. Number one, it is a gospel of salvation by grace. The message that we're warned not to drift from. This great salvation is a salvation of grace. What does that mean? The, the first thing grace means is that God would kick the legs out from under any of us who think that we are good enough for God. The first word of the gospel of Jesus is not an affirmation of us, but a condemnation. The gospel begins by saying, you are not enough. You are not good enough. Your works are not holy enough. Your best try wasn't even close. You know what? You can't do this. You don't have it in you. This is what it means when the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus's very name means God saves, because that is what the gospel is. God saving sinners who can't save themselves. That the shame you feel in the pit of your stomach when you lie, when you gossip about your friend, when you, when you look at porn, whenever you feel that stab of jealousy, that shame is a gift meant to drive you to realize that you are not good. Which goes against everything our culture has to say. Our culture teaches us to spend so much time trying to convince ourselves that we are enough. That we are good enough. Because we know deep down that we honestly aren't. If we were, we wouldn't have to talk about it so much. We wouldn't have so many self-help books and seminars. Our only hope is the hope of what Colossians 2 says. In verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus, 
who knew no sin became sin. When the nails passed through his hands and through his feet, the nails passed through our debt on the cross. Our record of debt was abolished. And he did that. He did that so that he could, in an act of totally free grace, give you his record of righteousness. Come on, somebody. I know we're almost done, but I kind of feel like I'm getting warmed up. All right. Second thing, it's a gospel of it's a gospel of kingdom. It's a gospel of kingdom. We saw this in chapter one. The great salvation is not uh, just about forgiving and reconciling us to God, but doing that in order that we might live under uh, the reign of God as our king. The, the first part of our mission statement here at, at Legacy is that, is that we are for God and his kingdom because it is a gospel of kingdom. We noted in chapter 1 that the author of Hebrews, he quoted from uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. When, when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven, he did so to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, and where, the, where the Father tells him, he says this in Psalm 110 and also in Hebrews chapter 1, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Part of why we don't drift from the gospel is because to do so, is to make ourselves a part of the enemy host which is being put under the feet of Christ. There's no neutrality. You cannot abandon Christ and join anything other than the kingdom of darkness. C.S. Lewis reminds us the whole universe, every square inch of it and every second in it, is claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by Christ. There is only one Lord and you are either for him or against him. We're good. We're good. We don't. There's no movies after this, so we're good. We've got a few extra minutes. We're fine. Van, you guys can actually go ahead and come on back up. We're we're, here. we're wrapping up here. Here's the third thing. The gospel is also a gospel of warning. A gospel of warning. It's a promise of both salvation and of judgment. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? The answer is simple. You don't. Just like the Old Covenant, God's covenant of grace includes a warning of judgment. The warning is that if God has given his son and you still refuse him, then you insist on justifying yourself, being your own God, your own Savior, representing yourself in his court of judgment. And in doing so, you will lose. In church circles, I think we toss around the word salvation so often that, that maybe it loses its true meaning for some. But I love this in verse 3. It has another word in there that points us to the significance of the concept. And the word is escape. In verse 3, how shall we escape? Because escape implies a situation of great danger. You don't need to be saved in the truest sense of the word if you are not in very real danger of dying. Right? Outside of Jesus, every sinner, that is every person since we are all sinners, is in great danger. Breaking God's law comes with a penalty, namely eternal separation from God in hell. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And I love what Jonathan Edwards said in his famous, one of his famous sermons. He said, every sinner is like a spider dangling by a thread over a fire. Only God's mercy keeps us from falling into the eternal flames. There's a, there's a warning. It's a gospel also of warning. 
You know, salvation does not mean that Jesus helps you fulfill your dreams. Salvation is not about Jesus improving your marriage or giving you peace or joy in your current circumstances. God's salvation isn't a nice thing to round out your otherwise successful and happy life. Salvation is about Jesus rescuing you from the wrath to come. And since every person is in very real danger of facing that wrath, salvation is every person's greatest need. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. We thank you for your salvation that just blows our mind. That you would send your son to die for us. And then that you would offer that for free for us to accept. This great salvation. And so I pray, God, right now for everyone in attendance today, everyone watching online, that we wouldn't drift. That we wouldn't drift away from this message that we've heard, this gospel, this truth that you've instilled in us, that you've placed in our hearts, that we wouldn't drift. That we would stay true, we would stay firm, we would stay anchored to you. And if there's anyone in this place today, if there's anyone watching today that doesn't know you, that doesn't understand the salvation, that is hearing these words and maybe they're washing over them for the very first time in the truest sense of the words, and they're realizing what salvation really is and that, that maybe they don't have it. I pray that you would move them to action today. That they would step into your kingdom, your love, your grace, your mercy. God, we love you so much. We pray as we as we as we sing more praises, as we lift your name up, as we glorify you and magnify you in this place as we celebrate on this Pentecost Sunday, Holy Spirit, be alive in this house. Be alive in this atmosphere today. Move us. Shake us. God, I don't want to leave here the same. I want to be different. I don't want to be drifting away from you. I want to be drifting towards you. Intentionally moving towards you. So God, I pray that these next songs, these celebrations will be pleasing to your ear. If there's anyone in this place that needs to pray, I pray that they will, they will take that step. They will go out to the care room and they'll find me. That we can pray together. Move us to action. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name.